Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Foundation. Today is April 26th, 2022. What you are about to hear is a webinar we recorded earlier today entitled Legalized Discrimination, How Israel's Citizenship and Entry Law Harms Palestinian Families by Design. The webinar features Israeli member of Knesset Aida Tuma Sliman, Dr. Murad El Sana, and Dr. Hassan Jabarin, the director of Adela, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, all in conversation with FMEP's president, Lara Friedman. Thank you so much for joining. So hello and welcome. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. <laughs> And I am very happy to welcome you today to our webinar entitled Legalized Discrimination, How Israel's Citizenship and Entry Law Harms Palestinian Families by Design. We are very proud to co-host today's webinar together with Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, an organization which we are proud to partner with and proud to be a funder of. So as just quick background, last month, as I think most people who are on this webinar know, the Israeli Knesset passed a new version of Israel's infamous I'm putting this in quotes, citizenship and entry into Israel law, unquote. So this law denies to Palestinian citizens of Israel a fundamental right that Israel's Jewish citizens take for granted. And let's be clear, citizens around the world take this for granted. And, and I would say hold it dear, which is the right to make your life with your chosen partner or spouse in the country where you hold citizenship and make your home. Uh, this legislation first was adopted by the Knesset in 2003 as a quote-unquote temporary measure, ostensibly for quote-unquote security reasons. But after that, it was renewed repeatedly over and over and over for 20 years, most recently in March 2022. And the renewed law, which is actually not a renewed law, it's a different law, includes explicit provisions referring to the quote-unquote demographic purpose of the law, which is something critics always said was the real purpose. And it has led Adala to label this law, and I'm quoting, one of the most racist and discriminatory laws in the world. So we're happy to be joined today by three esteemed panelists. Uh, we're very honored. First of all, we have member of Knesset, Aida Thomas Sleiman, who has fought against this law since its first passage. Thank you for joining us, Aida. We have Dr. Murad Asana, who was among the first petitioners against this law when his family was directly impacted by it. Thank you, Dr. Asana. And we have uh, Dr. Hassan Jabarin, who leads Adala's challenges against this law at the Israeli Supreme Court. Thank you, Hassan, for joining us today. You can find the full bios of all three of our guests on the website, and uh, links have just been put into the chat box, I believe. So round one. We're going to start with Hassan. Hassan, briefly, tell us about this law. What is it? What and whom does it regulate? How does this law, the law that was just passed, which is not any longer a temporary law, how does it differ from the 2003 version? Yeah, hi uh, to everybody and greeting from Haifa. Uh, this law, as you say, uh, Lara, uh, the origin of this law was in 2003. And uh, then uh, Israel argued before the court that this is a temporary law. And uh, the reason for this law is security reason because the second intifada in order to prohibit Palestinians to enter uh, Israel for security reasons. Now, this law, of course, banned family unification uh, when uh, of the Palestinian citizen and uh, Palestinian resident of Jerusalem when one of the partner 
the spouse, uh, resident of West Bank, Gaza, or uh, state that define enemy state, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran. That's mean if I want to marry a woman from Ramallah, we cannot live together in Israel. Uh, if uh, one of our kids was born in Ramallah, so we cannot live together with our kids inside Israel. The same applies to the people in Jerusalem. And in fact, the people of Jerusalem, their case much harder because their life is so connected with uh, the West Bank, their social life, economic life. Uh, so the same apply to them. And then we argue that there is no any state in the world that ban its citizen to have family unification only based on ethnic affiliation. And the argument was that this law is temporary for security reason. And as you said, it was extended year after year after year. And the last version now make it clear that the reason of this law and the purpose of this law to protect Israel as a Jewish state meaning that the reason is demographic reason. This is what we argue then, and the majority of the justices of the Supreme Court didn't accept it. Now, why we label this law one of the racist laws uh, in the world? Because even in the 20th century, when South Africa, during the apartheid, tried to, uh, to, to regulate such a regulation, to prohibit, family life, family unification between black families when one of the spouses live uh, in area, in urbanian area, in area that dominated by whites, the court in South Africa canceled that and they said or uh, decided that the apartheid has never intended to damage the family life of the blacks. But here we know Israel based on the Jewish nation state law, also emphasize that this is state for the Jewish people and the only people who can exercise their right of self-determination uh, in Israel is the Jewish people. And the nation state law emphasized that the right for immigration is also only for uh, Jewish uh, persons. And the law of the return of Israel say that Clearly. So now we have a situation that if you are citizen of the state, you are a Palestinian citizen, you won't have the fundamental rights to live with your spouse inside Israel. But if you are a Jewish citizen of Israel, you can exercise this uh, right even when a person, when your spouse originally from state that define enemy state, meaning I am not allowed to marry persons from Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, Iran, because they are enemy states. But if I am a Jewish person, I can do that. So we submit the petition before the court and uh, many other human rights organizations also submitting. And we expect that the hearing will be uh, this year but because the court already confirmed this law twice, our hope is not high 
in this case. Thanks, Asa, and that, that's a great introduction. And just to sort of, just a couple of terms I wanna just sort of lay out for people to de decode it. So when people talk about this law, they often talk about family unification and family reunification, which, which I think sounds very, it's like some sort of technical thing. Here you're simply talking about members of the same family being able to live together. Those are spouses, these are children. This isn't about you know, people who were on different ships during a refugee crisis. This is actually about today in current, poli current policy, if a Palestinian member, a citizen of Israel from Haifa marries somebody from Ramallah, not being allowed to live together. That's what we're talking about. And just to also decode, I'm probably most people understand when people talk about the demographic purpose of the law, that the idea there is about engineering the, the balance between Jewish and non-Jewish citizens of the state of Israel. So Murad, I wanna to turn to you. I, I don't know if you're having issues with your, with your uh, internet or something else, but we, we'd love to see if we can. Um, Murad, can you talk about what are the effects of this law in practice? And, and to the, the extent that you're comfortable, can you talk about your personal experience with this law and with the Supreme Court challenge against it in 2003? Yeah, basically, uh, good evening, everybody. Or good morning for those who have it morning now. Uh, thank you for uh, hosting this webinar and thanks for uh, Adala for keeping on following this uh, issue since uh, 20 years now, okay? And uh, I do not, uh, when, they, uh, the, uh, when they enacted this law at the beginning, I did not expect that this law would continue to be renewed for 20 years. At the beginning, we're expecting that this is going to be for, for six months only, and that was the promise for the government. And also they convinced uh, the Supreme Court in Israel that this, is, this was a temporary order, a temporary uh, uh, issue that they will uh, cancel it there. Uh, when the security situation changed, uh, changed in the, in the in the state and in the West Bank, in the occupied territories, uh, I was very naive because I thought that uh, uh, the democratic uh, element and character in this state would prevail and would uh, prevent such a discriminatory law. And uh, for me, uh, me and my wife, we met in, in Canada. She is a Palestinian from the West Bank, from Bethlehem. And uh, we decided to marry and we were engaged before the enactment of this law. So the law was applied to us retroactively. Uh, the law uh, destroyed our life, changed every, all the plans for my life. Uh, in conclusion, the law uh, forced us to live in exile for 20 years for no reason, other than we are not uh, Jews who live in Israel. So uh, this law regulated everything in our life. So from the moment we wanted to uh, marry, like, uh, visiting each other and uh, doing what we call the marriage ceremony. We were not allowed to, we couldn't do it in, 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 uh, in my village, for example, in the Negev. I'm from Lagia village next to Beersheba. She's from Bethlehem. So traditionally we had to do it in my village, in my town. And uh, we were not allowed to do that because they refused to give uh, Abir, uh, my wife, uh, 
uh, a permit to visit even for the marriage ceremony to, to, uh, in, in, in Israel. So we had to do it in, in Bethlehem. The guests were not allowed to come into the ceremony because uh, Bethlehem was under siege in 2002. And it was very hard for, for many of them to, to come to the wedding ceremony. But that was only the, the beginning of the hardships that we started to practice. Then after the marriage, we tried to apply for, for, uh, for a family unification according to the law in order to allow uh, Abir to come to live with me. So in order just to submit the application to the, in the, ministry, uh, the uh, in, in ministry of Interior, you had to, uh, to make an appointment. In order to do that appointment, you have to call a phone that does not answer for anybody. And you have to go to wait in front of the Ministry of Interior for maybe three, four hours, and you will never get that appointment. Some people were waiting since three in the morning in order to get that appointment because they dedicated only one officer to deal with maybe 300, 400 files, okay? And during that day, they accept only seven people. So imagine if you have 300 and they accept only seven people. <clears throat> so, and that's just to submit the documents, it's not the application. And then you talk, to submit the application, you have to wait about two months. And then usually they will ask for documents that you don't have them. And uh, you have to wait more than three, four months. I had to go back to the court and to submit a petition with Adala and with uh, later on by myself, only to submit the application for family unification. You are not talking yet about the process that taking them in order to give you a final result. And then finally, after maybe three, four months to give you a result, they give you a permit for only six months. Okay, that permit, they give it to you for six months and then you have to take that permit. And then my wife had to take the documents to the, uh, administ the military administration in the West Bank in order to get another permit for herself to be able to travel to Israel. And when she come to Israel, finally, she find out that she cannot work in Israel, although she is a social worker with master's degree. She cannot drive a car in Israel. She cannot study at the university, Hebrew or something else. And she almost paralyzed. She is a prisoner, a prisoner in her house. She cannot do anything, okay? Uh, later on when we got, uh, also, she cannot use the health services because she is not covered. She obviously, she is not a citizen and she is not a resident of Israel. So uh, we couldn't live this way. Later on, when uh, our first uh, kids were born, every time we had to visit her family in the West Bank or uh, in the occupied territories, uh, the kids were traumatized on these checkpoints because they forced their mom to go through a different route and we had to go with the car in different route. And because they knew their mom is part of this process, they had to search the car thoroughly and to search our body and even the kids. And later on, they started to get a dog into the car to, to sniff and to smell things. So that was uh, unbearable uh, treatment and situation, especially when you start to see your kids traumatized. Uh, my wife, Abir, also was traumatized because her life became to be a nightmare. So uh, we started to think of 
looking or searching for other place to live in, at least temporary, okay? And then we decided to travel for, uh, to study for me at uh, the United States. And when we wanted to travel, we discovered that Abir is not allowed to travel through Ben-Gurion airport only because she is a Palestinian. So we had to go through Jordan. And when we travel to Jordan, we have to go through two checkpoints. That means I go through King's Isle, through Allenby, she goes through Allenby uh, port, okay? And I had to go through King Hussein's uh, border. And, and, and just, King, just these, are, these are miles apart from each other. These are these different are parts of the border. four hours driving difference, four hours, okay? And then we had to go to Jordan to rent a hotel to wait for our flight and to fly from Jordan. And when we come back, the same thing. We are not allowed to come back to Ben-Gurion Airport only because Abir is a Palestinian, okay? And this forced separation from the mom and the kids. Uh, they were only six months uh, old and uh, some of them one year and a half. So that was a, a nightmare. In the long run, we're discovering that is this is this was nothing compared to what we are practicing now. That means we are uh, living in exile. That means we we left our homeland. We left our home. Uh, I left my career, okay, successful career. I used to work as a lawyer and as a lawyer at the staff attorney, attorney with Adala. Later, on, I was the director of Adala office in the Negev, and. Uh, you lose everything, but especially you lose your homeland, you lose your society, your community. Almost everything in your life is destroyed because of this law. Thank you. That is um, that is a very sobering and incredibly upsetting story. Um, I'm I'm sorry for what you and your family have been through, and I, I'm I'm more honored that you would share that with us. Um, I know. I want to come to you and, and ask you to also talk about some of the examples of how how this works in practice for human beings. I mean, it's one thing to talk about a policy. Um, Murad has just given us the example of one family's experience. Can you talk about how lack of legal status affects the lives, particularly of Palestinian women um, who are are awaiting um, you know the idea awaiting family quote unquote unification, the ability to live with their their family inside the Green Line. Uh, thank you, Lara. Thank you for this uh, webinar. I've been, any, um, I have to say that uh, uh, since I got to the Knesset, uh, of course, I was opposing all the time the slow, but since I got to the Knesset and was elected to be uh, chairing the uh, Committee on Status of Women and Gender Equality, I conducted um, uh, uh, a lot of meetings that discussed the um, uh, um, difficulties and the obstacles that uh, women uh, who has no status, that's how they call them in Israel. They, of course, in my opinion, they have a status, they are Palestinian, they should have a status as uh, citizens in Israel because they are married to uh, um, uh, Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, but this is how the terminology in Israel. And uh, I've heard a lot of the um, uh, uh, suffering of these families, but um, again, when I'm listening again to Murad 
and and hearing the pain in his voice i mean um you never uh, uh you you cannot get uh, numb to uh, to uh, those stories it's it's again makes you angry and makes you feel like um, there is no way that israel can continue to do this um if if it wasn't enjoying from an international and international impunity for all this uh, discrimination and for all of these actions that are in my opinion pure racist apartheid uh, uh, actions uh, i've i've been dealing with a lot of stories of women i think that women and men are suffering in this equation the pain was coming from murad's uh, uh, words although he is a citizen and his wife who is not who is denied the right but after all we are talking here about a family life that is meant to be destroyed meant to be avoided although the the part of the equation or the spouse who is not citizen of israel is suffering more because a lot of his very essential rights are taken from him if he is a man or if he is a woman uh, a palestinian man who is married to a palestinian woman citizen of israel <coughs> um is 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 a becoming helpless person you can see that this man is not able to live with his family many times he is not able to provide his family which is part of the you know gender rules it doesn't mean that i have to accept these rules or i uh, but this is the reality in the society the men are feeling suddenly that they become helpless not able to support their families not able to defend their families and they have to go through tests with their children in order to prove that these children are his i mean uh the israeli uh, 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 government or ministry of interior asked uh, uh, children to be tested by dna in order if you if the woman want to register them to be sure that the children are uh, his children uh, so this is one these are issues beyond you know the freedom of uh, movement beyond the, the issue of employment beyond the issue of a uh, 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 healthcare it's much deeper it goes into uh, levels of levels of the identity itself as a human being as a palestinian as a man as a woman uh, as to the women from both sides they are suffering if she is a citizen of israel married to um, a palestinian uh, from the west bank who is denied the right to be with his family unifying with his family suddenly she is in a situation where she is uh, as if married but not really married she is like a single mother and she has to take care of the family she is denied the rights of a single parent or a single mother from the authorities because your husband is there he is still alive he is in the west bank but he is alive 
And at the same time, she is acting actually as a single mother because he cannot work, he cannot drive, he cannot act as a husband. And if she is from the other side, from the Palestinian, if she is the one who is denied citizenship or many times residency even inside Israel, there are many cases because like Murad said, when he got married it was before the law, but the law came and acted retroactive. So there are people who already are living inside Israel without the real authorization to live. So they are underground. They are living underground. They are not able to move. She is captured literally inside the village or inside the house because if any, in any of her movements, a police will tackle her, will immediately take her and just drop her on the other side of the green line. This is so, a good situation, uh, Aida. Sometimes they take them to interrogation and they put them into in detention. And for the Arab woman to be in the police center and detention is a big shame. Mm -hmm. So they are terrorized by these police and by their status in Israel. I have to say that there were cases that I dealt with that women came to deliver baby especially in the Negev, in Soroka hospital, they delivered their babies and the police few hours later came, picked her up from the hospital with the baby, drove her to the next checkpoint, just put her there after delivering a baby in a few hours. So they are not able, these women, they are not able to drive, they are not able to move, they are not able no, if, if she is, um, a, 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 let's say, suffering from like any, for my regret, like any other people uh, in the world or any society, we have also gender-based violence. So right. if she's having problems inside the house, even if it is not violent, any kind of problem, she is not able to ask for help from any of the authorities, neither welfare police or anything, because they will discover the fact that she is there. And then and they she, will arrest her or, or deport her. Deport her and mm -hmm. deport her from other countries. So most, as I said, most of these women are captured in these situations and they are not able to move. I have to say that I dealt with a case of a woman who is uh, from the Negev, got married 55 years ago, she is now 75 years old. She is sick. When, when she was supposed to register, when she got married, she did not apply. There is no unification. She doesn't have any papers. And now she is sick. Her children, six children she has, all of them citizens, wants to, you know, um, get her citizenship or at least proper uh, 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 residency and health care. So because she is sick, until now, we didn't manage to get this woman her uh, uh, citizenship. She is, she's been married 55 years. Her husband died a few years ago. So she is now denied because her sons are above 18 years old, 
even residency they are not willing to give her. So this is the situation. As much as we can explain, it's it's entering to the every little detail of the la family life and the personal life of those who are involved. Thank you, Aidan. Thank you, Murad. I, I want to just remind people who are listening, because I can imagine some people listening to this think, you know, that's terrible, but there are immigration laws, you have to abide by the immigration laws, if you're in a country illegally, blah, blah, blah. I think it has to, again, be reminded, the reason we entitled this, the, the title of the law, and so this is designed to hurt Palestinian families, is that this law only hurts. It is designed to target Palestinian citizens of Israel. I, as a Jewish American, if I moved to Israel tomorrow and got citizenship, I could bring my spouse in. There is not a law that, that targets my spouse and makes it impossible, so difficult it is impossible based on anything because I'm Jewish. Um, this is a law that is ethnically designed to target Palestinians and to prevent them from building families inside of Israel, um, these Palestinian citizens. Um, so I think it's really important to remind people when, when we talk, when, when it's, this is not comparable to, to the general immigration questions you have in other countries. Um, I may yes. say only one uh, thing. I have to say, I usually use this example. My daughter is married to a Dutch uh, um, from Holland citizen, a, a totally European, no Palestinian roots or anything. There was no problem to get him residency. And if he wanted, he didn't want because he will lose his citizenship in his country. He could have now citizenship in Israel. But he is from Holland, but a Palestinian who lives one hour away from uh, her, if she would have folded in love with such Palestinian, she wouldn't have this privilege. Yeah, that, that's a really powerful example. So, Murad, I want to come back to you, um, and and I want to try to move a little bit faster because we have a lot we want to cover. But you know, the this temporary law, which was passed over and over, as we said, it's for twenty years. There was a nine month window from July twenty twenty one to March twenty twenty two when it actually had expired and hadn't been renewed. And I think there was a there was some hope that that was the beginning of the end of this law. And at the very least, until the Knesset got through its fight about what to do next, there would be a window to regularize the status of a lot of Palestinians who had been caught in the web of this law for so many years. Can you talk about what actually happened during this period? According to my uh, humble knowledge, nothing. I talked to my lawyer and I told him there is a window and he said that the Ministry of Interior is, is giving instructions that saying they the, these uh, they continue to treat the cases according to their previous rules. And there's no real changes during this time. And you cannot apply for a residency or citizenship for, for your spouse. And that's the answer many people got there. Uh, so uh, this window, uh, uh, no much uh, things were done there. Uh, some people were able during the recent years to get their uh, residency, that means uh, the blue uh, ID cards, okay? But only because they started to give quotas for those who have been suffering there for more than 20 years and they applied their uh, files before uh, the law and before the law that enacted in 2003 and all these uh, 
uh, tight uh, rules that they put for, for the Palestinians. I have to mention two things here, okay? The first one, uh, I would like to, to tell that the situation for the Palestinian women who uh, get married with Israelis is very miserable, it's very hard. I'm, 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 uh, I have dealt with some cases as a private lawyer and as some of them as a, a lawyer with, uh, with Adala. So the policy against family unification for the interior minister in Israel is, is, was harsh and discriminatory before the enactment of this law. So you'll find many people, the examples that uh, Aida Toma is giving here are for many women who were not uh, able <clears throat> to apply for getting residency or status uh, any kind in Israel because of the bureaucracy, because of the uh, lack of uh, means to hire lawyers because of the uh, process that it takes. Sometimes people apply to the Ministry of Interior and their file stays for years with no reply from the Ministry of Interior. And people go to ask about their cases, and they will give them no replies, no answers. So these people stay there, especially women, because first of all, they don't speak the language. Many times their financial means are limited. And if they want to hire lawyers, lawyers cost a lot of money. And for these cases, uh, many times the chances to succeed is more than, less than I say 20 or 30%, okay? So many of them got to live in the dark. They are prisoners, they are uh, home, in, in home arrest in their homes because as, as Aida said, if they leave the village and, uh, and encounter any checkpoints or police, even for a traffic violation, they could uh, arrest them. They took, could take them and separate them from their children, uh, send them back to the West Bank. And this is very hard. This is shameful for the Arab women sometimes to be arrested, to be separated from her kids. And many times, as Aida said, we have uh, also a domestic violence issue, these women are not able to go to report and to get any kind of assistance. So they live in this kind of, of life that it's very hard, very miserable, very terrorized from the authorities, from their families, from the culture, from so, so many, so many uh, issues. The other thing that I wanted to mention that people who get into the web of this uh, cunning role, okay, the cunning law, it's not only their life changes, but their view about the things changes. For, for me, I'm not the person who was before 20 years, okay? We know that, we know that this law is based on ideology. This law based on uh, ideology that pushes Knesset members and the officers in the governmental offices, and including even justices, not only in the magistrate or regional courts, but also in the Supreme Courts. I say that the Supreme Court justices allowed the court to deceive them. They knew that this is not a security reason law, that means the security reasons were not the main reasons behind this law, but the demographic one. And as Hassan said, Adala, and we argued at the beginning that this is not a law that came to protect security in the state of Israel, but this law that came 
based on demographic issues that based on, on the Zionist discriminatory ideology and way of thinking that they don't want the demography in the state of Israel to change. They believe that the, if the Palestinians in Israel marry with Palestinian women from the, from the occupied territories and bring them here, they could change the, uh, the demographic uh, balance in the state, which is also a fake argument, okay? Because if the number here is very low, it's only 30,000 uh, families who, are, uh, who, who have been doing this for, for more than 20 years. And the Supreme Court justices allowed themselves to be deceived by the general attorney lawyers and by the state lawyers and to argue that this is a security law for, for more than 16 years. And as Hassan said later on, the, the state itself admitted that this is not a security law. This is a demographic law, which is also shed light on the, the depth of the discrimination against the Arab Palestinians in Israel. This depth of discrimination is, as mentioned, related to the ideology, to the historical roots of the state as a colonial state that came in to replace the Palestinians, to evict them from their homes, and to bring uh, Jewish or Western settlers instead of this population. And this is the real issue. This is the problem with this law and many other laws that have been enacted around this one in recent years, especially after the Second Intifada. Thank you, Murad. And, and I want to build on that. Uh, coming back to you, Aida, and Hassan, get ready. I'm coming to you next. Um, so building on this idea, that we, so Murad mentioned the nation state law. So, so let's go back. In 2003, when, when, this, for, when this law was passed as a temporary measure, it was, it, the, the argument that was used broadly, certainly with the international community, was this is just security. It's not racism, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, then Prime Minister Ayal Sharon was pretty clear. And he said, and I'm quoting, there's no need to hide behind security arguments. There's a need for the existence of a Jewish state. So, you know, even then there was this kind of balancing these two arguments, depending who you were talking to. I want to ask you how that debate has shifted or the language, the narratives in Israel have shifted over time, if they have, um, particularly since we've had the nation state law, where you, you actually have a shift in the entire narrative inside Israel to more openly embrace the idea that preserving a Jewish majority, preserving this demographic balance, um, and it's a balance that, to use my friend Danny Seidemann's language that sees the birth of every Jewish child as a mitzvah and the birth of every Palestinian child as a demographic threat. Um, can you talk about how that has evolved in, in the public narrative and indeed in the Knesset's narrative? Yes, well, um, Lara, I think that um, um, we have uh, seen this time, uh, uh, especially in this, uh, uh, um, through this time when it was, uh, the law was again uh, brought to the Knesset, we heard for the first time very clear, different discourse around it. Even if in the past there were uh, like the um, statements made by either Sharon or some of other politicians very quietly, very uh, low profile uh, statements that uh, yes, there is also the um, uh, demographic uh, uh, issue in it. Uh, they kept it uh, away from the uh, uh, public. They did not announce it very clearly because it's also, uh, yani, um, when it comes to the Supreme Court and Hassan can explain that better than I am, 
if the whole discourse is demographic, it will be um, um, uh, uh, it it will be easier to attack the law in the Supreme Court if this is the only uh, um, discourse that is existing. On the other hand, I think that uh, what happened, and you can uh, take example of two big statements, but through the discussions in the Knesset, it was very clear. They tried to bring again, you know, the, the narrative of security issues. They couldn't prove it through the 20 years. 20 years, they couldn't show that um, uh, uh, Palestinians who got citizenship or unification are involved in any, uh, like in any uh, uh, activities that is threatening the security of the state uh, more than in general, for example. Well, and to be fair, even if they could, to then have this law would be collective punishments, I mean. That, yeah, that's one of the arguments that we usually uh, use, that even if someone is involved in anything that is against the security of the citizens or the state of Israel, you should bring him into trial and you should punish him and not to do a collective punishment for the whole uh, 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 Palestinian people just for that. But uh, uh, this year it was very clear and I think it's also part of the political changes that are happening inside Israel and the power that is gained by the right year after year, the, the nationalist right, right the um, um, uh, those and the competition between the different political parties who are relating to the right wing in Israel. Now you have two parties who are relating to the set to what is called national religious uh, uh, parties, which mean parties who are representing the settlements movement, the settlers. You have part of them in the government, in the coalition, uh, Bennett's um, and Yamina, and part of them are in the opposition. And they are competing each other. And when, you, when they are competing, they need to use the ideology in order to argue. And that's why it's revealed in a better way the narrative or the discourse that they kept aside for or kept it uh, uh, low profile for many years uh, in more clever way by the Likud, let's say, or uh, other parties. That's one reason. The other reason is that, in my opinion, there is more legitimacy in Israel for such kind of narrative or discourse after the uh, uh, Jewish nation state law. After the Jewish nation state law, the, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's all, all the discussions are led by the legitimacy of preserving the Jewish state identity. It's, they are trying to move as if the threat is not on the existence of the state, but on the identity of the state. And that's why there is more legitimacy of going and taking actions that I'm, I'm, I'm using their mind. This is not what I believe in. Uh, 
uh, uh, they, to, to take more actions and to uh, 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 accelerate the, the, the narrative that is targeting the demography or, or uh, strengthening the major, Jewish majority in order to preserve the Jewish identity of the state. So now they are getting it out more clearly because they feel there is a legitimacy in the public opinion after years of inciting and after years of talking about the threat on the identity of the state and not only the existential or militarized threat on the state security issues. You could see it when, when the law have passed, Smotrich, who is from the... It was the first law that the right wing in the opposition supported the coalition in this cadency. It's the first law that they um, uh, worked together on it. And Smotrich says, we managed to save a, 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 a Zionist na a, a, a national, no, no, sorry, that was the Shaked who said, it's, I worked very hard to pass this law and it's good that it passed because it's a first class Zionist national security issue. She put the uh, law, she put the security interest as the third one in her statement, which means what was in all, and this law is very good for preserving the and developing the Jewish state. That means very clearly that the ideology and the demographic balance and this narrative is what is leading this law and not, and it has been out there open in the discussions in the parliament and in the statements of the politicians. Thank you. And I, I appreciate the, the connection you make to the nation state law. I remember keenly in, in some of the US and English language Israeli press analyses when the nation state law passed where people were saying, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have any impact. It doesn't, it just describes things. It's not, it doesn't change anything. And, and, and I remember people like you and Hassan at the time saying that's ridiculous and this is going to have concrete impact. And, and here we have an example of that. So Hassan, coming back to you and, and speaking of the nation state law, um, so the Supreme Court voted twice to uphold the citizenship and entry into Israel law in its temporary form in six to five decisions in 2006 and 2012. Adala is now appealing against this new law in a petition to the Supreme Court. So can you talk about the arguments that you're making now to the court and, and how do they differ from earlier appeals? And, and how do you, can you talk about what you think the court will do? in 2022, given the new the shift in the political dynamics? Yeah, I think there is a shift in our argument. Our argument today is different than a little bit, at least, uh, from the argument of uh, when the law passed in 2003. Uh, Murad mentioned that when the law passed for the first time as temporary law, he didn't believe that this law will last. 
In fact, we as a lawyer, we didn't believe that we will lose the case then. Why? <laughs> Does that mean that we believe in Israeli justice or Israeli legal system or what behind that? The reason is that one of the difference between Israel regime and the apartheid of South Africa is this. The apartheid of South Africa regulates all the racial segregation through the law. Israel tried as much not to use the law in order to emphasize the segregation. It left the segregation practices to the executive branch and the Supreme Court. This is why we live even in many different situations uh, of segregation without any law that supports that. And uh, for example, uh, we were under military regime until 1966. There is no law saying that we were under military regime until 1966. It was two different legal systems. The status of the Palestinians in East Jerusalem is not, they are not citizens and they are not alien, they are residents. There is no law say that they are resident. So in fact, Israel avoid the use of the law in order to show that our law is clean, is neutral, except some of the laws like law of retail, city property law that they were enacted in the 50s. Now this is why we didn't believe that this time the Knesset will regulate directly the racial segregation. And this is why the Supreme Court was split half against the law and half with the law, because they didn't want to have racial segregation inside the law, the written, and to show that it's, uh, it's apartheid. Doesn't mean that the situation before the enacting of the law was bitter. It was based on the full discretion of the interior minister meaning that Israel rely on the executive to do the job. But now in 2003, the Knesset became more active for many different reasons that we don't want to now uh, to speak about it uh, for the short of the time. And they don't want to rely also in the executive or in the Supreme Court. They want everything to be clear in the law. And, uh, and now, what is our argument different than in 2003 is based on the development of international law. Now here, if we hear the stories that Aida told about the woman and the uh, personal story of Emora, we reach that this law is not only about not letting spouses living together in one specific area. It's about persecution of them to make their life as miserable, to affect their daily day life, their social, economic, and every aspect of their life. And this is really when you have second class citizenship. Second class citizenship means that in all the aspects of citizens, you will your right will be violated. But here, the violation is not only there's a discrimination, but leads to the level of oppression, persecution. And this is why, for the first time, we rely on Rome's statute. We say 
that this law is criminal based on international criminal law. This law apply the definition of apartheid based on Rome statute, meaning this law fall in the high prohibition of criminal law, meaning that you justices also, you are not allowed to be, to confer law that reach the high criminal uh, aspect and fall under the definition of crimes against humanity. This new argument that uh, we are relying, this is due to the development of international law, due of the development of international criminal law. We have to know also that the ICC already decided that they have jurisdiction to decide on issues that refer to Jerusalem, Gaza, and uh, West Bank. And this law applies directly to the people of Jerusalem also, meaning that Rome statute can be present here and a uh, 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 part of the legal discourse. This aspect we didn't argue in 2003. 2003, really, we were with the hope that we will win the case and we rely only in Israel law that uh, you are not allowed to have a racist uh, law such illness. Uh, uh, so, also, this argument of us come with the reports, the last international reports about characterizing Israel as apartheid religion. It started with the Tzedem report and then Human Rights Watch report and Amnesty. The main aspect of those reports that succeed to speak about Israel as apartheid or racial or uh, regime or seg racial segregation regime inside uh, the Green Line is the uh, question of citizenship and mainly this aspect of the law, that in Israel, you have two kinds of citizenship. One belong to the Israeli Jews and one belong to the Palestinians. And now when you hear those stories, you will, will reach that why really when uh, the status of citizenship become lower uh, or damaged, it will damage all the aspects of uh, a life. So this aspect of international law is a part of our legal discourse. We started with that, with the Jewish nation state law. We noticed that uh, in the last years, uh, we are internationalizing our uh, legal argument and not only rely on Israeli basic law. Uh, and we think that uh, this is the time also uh, to do that. Uh, of course, it uh, doesn't mean that uh, we are not using Israel law, uh, but the international uh, aspect of the law became permanent and important. Just to notice that for the first time since 1948, there is a UN Commission of Human Rights that investigates the status of the Palestinian citizen of Israel and discuss uh, the root causes of discrimination. 
in, in the past, uh, of course, uh, all the time, the question was referring only to the West Bank and Gaza and Jerusalem, but for the first time, there is UN Commission that also deal with this aspect. I think because Israel became as uh, more clearer uh, than uh, before in its racist discrimination. Now we have laws that they were enacted in the last 20 years that direct the rights of the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Before this discrimination was sort of hidden out of the law, danced by the executive. Today, when the Knesset became active and speak about demography as main purpose of the law, and we see many laws in this regard, it became easier to speak about Israel as apartheid and easier to speak about international law as relevant law for the status of the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Thank you. And, and Hassan, I know that you have to leave to go to Iftar. I, I really appreciate um, the, the answer you just gave. I think a lot of us, and, and you don't have to stay for my commentary here if you don't want, um, but it, it's striking that Israel passed this new law, this renewed and now permanent law in March of 2022, after we had the big amnesty report come out on February 1st, where there was all of this, you know, you can't call us apartheid, it's not apartheid, how dare you call us apartheid? And then you pass a law. And I want to read out the tweet from Interior Minister Ayelet Shaked. She tweeted after the law passed, in Hebrew, translated, uh, the tweet said, Jewish and democratic state, one, like one point, state for all its citizens, zero. Um, I mean, it, it's absolutely clear what the intent of the law is because it's written into the law and the people who support the law are making clear that the intent is discriminatory based on Palestinian <laughs> ethnicity identity, which is at the core of the finding, certainly by amnesty in February, that Israel is, is committing the crime of apartheid on both sides of the green line. And all of the arguments like, how dare you say this about Palestinian citizens of Israel? Because, you know, of all of these, you, you come up with a hundred examples of how Palestinian citizens of Israel are not basically, you know, you know, hiding in their houses and have no status. This, this is this this is the demonstration of exactly what that is. So I, I, I appreciate that very much. We are basically out of time. Murad, I want to come to you really for the, the last word. And you, you've talked about how this is directly shaped and impacted your life, the life of your family. I'm interested, if, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, what your struggle looks like projecting into the future. Um, because this law is obviously being challenged in the courts. It's not clear where that will go. Israel is still on a trajectory where you know, there is a normalizing of this kind of discriminatory thinking in a way that maybe it's much worse than it was when you know, 20 years ago. How do you see this as someone whose family is directly impacted by this law, your children, your wife? How do you, how do you see this going for the future for you? So in short, before I answer this question, I want to say uh, a comment on the international law, which Hassan was talking about. So we have to, to remember that the international law is not an effective, especially international human rights law is not an effective inside Israel. Israel was able to block all the international human rights conventions from applying to Israel. And you can review these uh, conventions and you will see that the international law will not change my status. The international law will not be able to change our status in Israel. There were uh, many more severe human rights violations against the Arabs in Israel, against the Palestinians in Israel, 
that the international law were not able to fix or to correct or to condemn even sometimes, okay? This is in regard to the international law. But in regard to the status of me and my family, uh, um, frankly, to, to tell you the truth, it's like the status of many of the Palestinians who were evicted from their houses in 1948 and were uh, doomed to exile in their life with their families and with their parents. And, uh, many of them, like uh, Professor Edouard Said, left his home in Jerusalem and he was not able to go back even to visit in this, uh, this house. Many Palestinians live in Jordan, in Lebanon, in the United States, in Europe, while their houses in Haifa, in Yaffa, in, in Beersheba, in Jerusalem, and they are not, they cannot go back. Okay, for me, it's is not exactly similar situation, but life, my life is taking different uh, route. That means now we have the kids are. Uh, uh, in the American uh, educational system. Now they will go to the universities here. And my main concern that it will be very hard for us to return, even if the situation changes because the center of our life shifted from there to here. That's the concern of every Palestinian who live in the exile for a long time. It will be very hard for them to go back. I'm trying my best to keep contact in contact with my home, with my homeland, with my friends, with my uh, people there, in order not to fall into this uh, black hole and to uh, stay uh, tuned to return the moment we can uh, go back to our home. Thank you. And and I listening to you, I, I recall something that I, I've come to understand from, from my Palestinian friends and colleagues colleagues, which is that for, for Palestinians, the Nakba is not a moment in time. It is, it is an ongoing process and that applies, and we're hearing right here, we're understanding the way that applies even to Palestinian citizens of Israel who enjoy citizenship and have been able to, to remain in their homes. So we're gonna have to end this here. Th thank you so much, Aida, Hassan, Murad for talking with us today. Thank you to everyone who joined us or listened to the event. We're glad to share this conversation with you. I tried to weave your questions in to the extent that I could. We will share all of the questions with the panelists so they will understand the thinking out there and, and hopefully can respond to that in their own speaking and writing. Please check back on the FMEP website, www.fmep.org for a video of this event and list of resources and also a link to the podcast version. So thank you, that's all. Until the next time, we hope to see you again. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.